guys, my name is Eleanor, and I'm going to be reading our passage uh, for us tonight. It comes from Ecclesiastes 11, 9 through 12, um, and then, yeah, in verse 8 too. Okay. Young people, it is wonderful to be young. Enjoy every minute of it. Do everything you want to do. Take it all in. But remember that you must give an account to God for everything you do. So refuse to worry and keep your body healthy. But remember that youth with a whole life before you is meaningless. Do not let the excitement of youth cause you to forget your creator. Honor him in your youth before you grow old and say life is not pleasant anymore. Remember him before the light of the sun, moon, and stars is dim to your old eyes. And rain clouds continually darken your sky. Remember him before your legs, the guards of your house start to tremble. And before your shoulders, the strong men stoop. Remember him before your teeth, your few remaining servants stop grinding, and before your eyes, the women looking through the windows see dimly. Remember him before the door to, to life's opportunities is closed and the sound of work fades. Now you rise at the, f at the first chirping of the birds, but then all their sounds will grow faint. Remember him before you become fearful of falling and worry about danger in the streets, before your hair turns white like an almond tree in bloom, and you drag along without energy like a dying grasshopper, and the caberberry no longer inspires sexual desire. Remember him before you near the grave, your everlasting home, when the mourners will weep at your funeral. Yes, remember your creator now while you are young, before the silver cord of life snaps and the golden bowl is broken. Don't wait until the water jar is smashed at the spring and the pulley is broken at the well. For then the dust will return to the earth, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us, and then we will get into not wasting your youth. Let's pray. Jesus, Savior, pilot us. You're our great hope as we come together and seek to see you and be reminded of who you actually are. I said it earlier and I believe it. I know it in myself even today. Um, I, my mind, my heart, we are prone to lose sight of you and forget and we get scared fast. And we get hard-hearted or lukewarm-hearted or cold-hearted quickly. And we start relating to you out of a, as if you were some other person and I pray you would bring healing and illumination and light and help tonight. I pray that you would shepherd us. I pray that you would pilot us. You love youth. You designed it. You made sure every human being would have to go through it and get to go through it. And so would you even redeem youth for us tonight and, and adolescence and the stage of life that, that um, most of us are in. We pray that you would um, just help us to use these years well. We pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, I've been doing RUF as a campus minister, I think nine years now, and I was an intern here for three years, way back in the day. And because of all those years that I've been doing this, um, I'll occasionally get asked the question from friends or as I go preach around at other churches, people will ask me, Ben, why campus ministry? And why this long? And I get asked it enough to where I have quick answers now, and I love that question, I love getting that question. But I have a quick answer because I've had to been, I've been thinking about it for so long. The first time I really started thinking about campus ministry, question mark, like should I do this, was towards the end of my internship here when I was 
feeling like a lot of you seniors, like, I don't know what I want to do. What's the direction I'm going to take? And uh, during those years, started to love ministry. It was my first time ever really getting to do that and um, fell in love with it. But particularly, um, I had this question of like, but ministering to who and where? And at first, it was like a shameful epiphany that I had. I was like, I've been in Athens. Like, I've been in the UGA world for 10 years. So all my old high school friends are like, have you graduated yet? <laughs> like, yes, it was four years as a student, a year working at UGA, a few years in grad school, a few years as an intern. But I'd been here a long time. And so what I first experienced is kind of like, man, I've been here a long time. I need to kind of move on with my life and grow up. Then I began to realize, well, what if God's actually called me to this? And what if I've been here for a decade and could spend another decade because I love it? And I, I mean, the, the answer is clear now that, that that was what he was beginning to show me. If you put my love of the university or college or college students under a microscope and you try to get a little bit more specific, what do you mean? Like love of this stage of life or the university setting or college, um, what exactly is in that? Um, a lot of it has to do with, um, I think you're in the stage of life when people's brains finally start firing on all cylinders. So you're asking a depth of question that you don't encounter very much in the middle school, high school years and not as often in the older adult years. And it's kind of a safe environment because you're around a lot of your peers, it's safer to open up about stuff that maybe you would never have opened up about in high school or maybe later on because it was stigmatized different people, different stage of life, different ages. You didn't know if you could talk about it, but here you can tell a roommate, you can tell a close friend, you know, whatever, your secrets. Doubts that have always been inside of you, but here they get to come out a little bit and maybe you get to work on them. Um, you're staying up till, I mean, I was talking to some of y'all that got the Thursday night guys group and you were like, yeah, the other week we were, we were still there three hours after it ended. Some of y'all got together a few nights ago to watch No Country for Old Men. Go. I love that. And put this Ecclesiastes series into practice. You're relationally blossoming. Worldviews are being worked out right now in your mind. Identities are being negotiated. The tectonic plates of people's lives are shifting and new things are forming in these years. So that's why I love it. That's super energizing and super fun. So if you tied all that up together in a bow, I'd say, I love it because it's a youthful place. If you had to say, what's the teacher talking about when he says young people? What an old man thing to say. Hello, young people. Um, if you, what does it mean to be young? I think it means a lot of what I just said. Uh, you're not under your parents' wing anymore. You're not in the nest. You have taken decisive steps out of the nest, and you're beginning now to put things into practice. You're scrutinizing beliefs you grew up with you're beginning to wonder, okay, I gotta give an answer to this stuff. I've gotta decide how to live my life. How am I gonna do it? Where am I gonna go? And it's really, really consequential, right? Um, you probably feel that and you should because uh, what's happening right now is really forming and deciding who you're gonna be the rest of your life. And I'm not just talking about do you meet your wife in college or your husband in college and that determines the outcome of your life or what career, but you're making decisions, and you're, you and I are doing things, not you and I, I was, you are doing things right now 
that are determining who you're going to be for the rest of your life. Rankin Wilburn, um, and I want to give credit where it's due. Um, he's, as I've told you before, he's been really helpful to me uh, this week in particular as well on this passage. He said uh, in, in some teaching on this, he said, you are deciding today what kind of older person you're going to be. That's what's at stake right now in your life. Ordinary life, ordinary life, daily decisions. This is determining what kind of older person you're going to be, what kind of adult you're going to be. And it's not that you can't change when you're older. I mean, you want to call me older? You can call me older. I'm 40, and I can change. Like, we can still, like, it's not like I'm so stuck in my ways I can't learn anymore, but it's harder. Uh, the Bible talks a lot about, or the wisdom literature in the Bible talks a lot about patterns and trends. And the scriptures, uh, God can convert a grumpy old man just as much as he can, you know, kind of a soft-hearted 15-year-old guy or girl. But patterns and trends. And scripture also says there are patterns and trends that as we grow older in life, the concrete that right now is wet and malleable and formable and just takes a little bit of effort to push and it changes you, in a decade, in two decades, in three decades, will take a lot more force as that concrete hardens. Change will take a lot more pain, perhaps. Maybe your curiosity begins to fade as you get older because you're like, I've seen these movies before, I've heard these messages before, I've read those books before, I've kind of figured out the way life works, and not as much gets into you anymore. Opinions harden. Um, you're not, not everything's a question in your life anymore. You have a lot of conclusions, a lot of assertions, a lot of confidence. And I'm not saying all this is bad. It just means that they're hardening, they're firming up. It's not accidental that uh, just globally, probably throughout the generations of the church, the majority of converts have been young people, whether adolescents or your age or young adults. And it doesn't mean that it doesn't happen where adults are converted or old people are converted. That happens regularly, but the bulk of it is people kind of still in the wet concrete, people with a little bit more perhaps um, of an open mind. Still a supernatural thing to become a Christian, to be born again. But perhaps there's some stages of life where we're a little bit more tuned in and listening or willing to consider new perspectives or not take simple answers. And so I think this is, a, to, if I could shift the voice of this passage, not just from the teacher, but God himself saying, there's something really special about these years I've given you really cool about youth, about these college years. And I think, he, I think uh, God even says, um, I love these years of your life. I love them. They're so just dripping with opportunity and potential. And they're really strategic years for all the reasons that we've said. And so he would say, open your eyes. Pay very careful attention. This is, there's a lot on the line. Um, sometimes in college you can have the idea that I'm preparing for life and then I'll go out into the real world and he would say, you're in the real world. This is your real life. This is who you are. This isn't preparation for some future thing. This is it. That's why so much is on the line too. So before we get into how God tells us to invest our youth, let's take just a quick second to talk about a couple of ways um, we can be prone to waste our youth or miss the most moldable years of our life, even though we're in them. It happens all the time. I think I, I would say it happens most of the time. 
that people miss the most multiple years of their life, um, the, these ripe years. Um, the first, uh, maybe from the passage that, that I could detect is that uh, a cause of wasted youth is living like God's not paying attention. The conventional wisdom might say something like, um, God really doesn't care what you do with your life or your body or your opinions or your decisions. Nobody really cares. Um, nobody's paying that careful attention to how you live. Now, the problem with that, if you can relate to that, um, I can, I could. Um, if you can relate to that, here's what happens when we adopt a mentality like that or it kind of subtly comes inside of us and becomes the way we think. In the, I've said this before this, this semester, in the absence of a creator, we all assume his role, right? When a human being goes through life with our eyes closed to our maker, to our creator, to God, we naturally assume his role. And all of a sudden, we're the arbiter of truth. Our opinions are authoritative. We begin to imagine ourselves a creator. We act like we're gonna live forever. We act like we don't have to answer to anybody but ourselves, right? That certainly sounds familiar to you and to kind of the world that we live in. Jacques Ellul, uh, a French philosopher, he was a Christian sociologist, he said this, he said, you are a creature and all the evils of this world, and I choose my words carefully, stem from our taking ourselves to be the creator. Living as if God is not paying attention to our lives, that living as if God didn't pay attention to today, that he's not paying attention right now. But our teacher has two things that refreshingly push back against that. And in chapter um, 12, verse 1, he says, Don't let the excitement of youth cause you to forget your creator. Which is to say that um, in the years you're in right now, um, you're particularly prone to distraction because of the excitement and the promise and the potential and the energy and the pace of youth. Like we said last week, the world's out in front of you, your life's ahead of you. High energy time in life, high octane time of life, which makes us extra prone to distraction and forgetfulness, and extra prone, therefore, to assume the role of creator in these years in particular. This might be where that really begins to start and take and kind of become supercharged in a person's life, in this stage of life, where we become comfortable walking through our days like God acting like him, thinking like him. But, this is refreshing, it might sound to our ears um, not, but we're not the creator. We're not God. We're tiny little dusty creatures. The last verse in this, from dust you came, and to dust you will return. And God is eternal. He has no birthday. Um, he's not getting older. A day is like a thousand years to him. A thousand years is like a day. He is. He what? He, God wasn't, and he won't, will be. He is. He's always in the stage of is, always present tense. He's outside of time. He created time. And we're his guests in this spectacular world we've been talking about the past seven weeks with all of its beauty, all of its just um, overwhelming sweetness to it. And he made us, and he sustains us, and he talks to us. So is he paying attention? Very carefully. 
And this is what he says uh, in, in um, verse 9 of chapter 11. Remember, you must give an account to God for everything that you do. In other words, your life does in fact matter to God. Your individual life, my today mattered to God. My tomorrow is going to matter to him. He's going to care about it. And he's going to want to talk about it with me and with you. And I don't think that this is necessarily here supposed to strike terror in us of like the sword of Damocles uh, dangling over you like big brother's watching and it kills all of the rejoicing that the teacher calls you to inhabit in these years of your lives. I don't think it's supposed to say, hey, the drill sergeant's coming. You better march and step. I think it's bathing your existence in significance and meaning. Because if God is not paying attention, nothing matters, right? Is that safe to say? If there's no follow-up conversation on every little detail of reality, um, it makes all the sense in the world to just invade countries on a whim because you want a little more land, because you want your dream to come true. It makes sense for us to take things from each other. We can do whatever we want. We've assumed back into the role of God. But what if he is paying attention? It actually bathes reality in meaning and significance, even the little ordinary things, even the tiniest details in your life. Uh, this is not the point of the passage, but I want to mention it because it might be coming to some of your minds. This touches on kind of a theme or an idea of judgment day and giving account to God. And you might be saying, well, I thought I was washed clean in Jesus. I thought I was united to Jesus, who is the innocent one, who's the vindicated one. And therefore, I'm innocent if I'm in Christ. And you are. I've heard it best described by a guy, Brian Habig. He said, you know, Christians will give an account for our lives and after will be declared innocent, clean in the blood of Jesus, united to Jesus, liberated in Jesus. But we, this conversation still comes of, of a God who, who um, carefully pays attention to our lives. Another um, cause of a wasted youth, perhaps, is... Um, Failing to appreciate that youth comes in short supply. Easy for me to say as a 40-year-old, hard for you to hear as a 20-year-old or 18 or 22 or whatever. But it comes in short supply, which means it's scarce and it's fading. It's scarce and it's fading. Now, why is it in short supply? I bet you guessed it. You're getting older. You're becoming more like me than not like me. Pretty soon, you're not going to understand the generation under you. So, but let's not just use common sense. Let's look at the passage and let it tell us why youth is in short supply. There's a percussion line. We didn't have the drums up here tonight, but there's a little beep, 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 beep in this um, poetry in chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes. Twelve times in ten sentences. Twelve times in ten sentences. The teacher says, remember your creator before, 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 before what? Follow with me. I'll dance around. Chapter 12, verse 1, before you grow old and life's not pleasant to you anymore. Verse 2, before the light of the sun, moon, and stars is dim to your old eyes, you can't see well anymore. Verse 3, before your legs give out. Second part of verse 3, before your teeth fall out, before your eyes dim. Verse 4, before the door to life's opportunities is closed. 
and you can't hear as well. Verse 5, before you become fearful and vulnerable and weak and frail and worried about falling or worried about what if something happens to me and no one's around to help me. Second part of verse 5, before you near the grave. Verse 6, he puts it positively. While you're young, before, and then he gets really poetic, the silver cord of life snaps. Don't wait. Don't wait, he says. Now, if I, I don't know how long 10 sentences takes to say. Maybe half a minute. If I repeated something to you 12 times in 30 seconds of talking to you, you'd get the message, right? You'd be like, apparently this is important to Ben. Why do you keep repeating that? Well, the teacher keeps repeating it. Um, look, this is um, Eugene Peterson's take on this in the message, which isn't the Bible, but is someone's teaching on the Bible. It's just like this sermon. It's helpful. This is what Eugene Peterson says, um, kind of explaining what, what that poem that I just kind of danced around for you is. He says, honor and enjoy your creator while you're still young, before the years take their toll and your vigor wanes, before your vision dims and the world blurs, and the winter years keep you close to the fire. In old age, your body no longer serves you so well. Muscles slacken, your grip weakens, joints stiffen. The shades are pulled down on the world. You can't come and go at will like you can now. Things grind to a halt. The hum of a busy household fades away. And you're wakened now by birdsong. In other words, no more sleeping until 11 on Saturdays. You wake up before the birds, before the rooster. Hikes to the mountain are a thing of the past. Even a stroll down the road has its terrors. Your hair turns white, adorning a fragile and, uh, well, what he says here is basically the caper berry is no longer effective or the ancient Viagra doesn't work anymore. And he says, yes, you're well on your way to eternal rest. That's what he's talking about. Youth comes in short supply. Do you know it? Do you live your life in an awareness of that reality? Do you realize what a special time you're in the midst of right now, what unique opportunity it has, that you're at your peak in a lot of ways? Um, if you're paying attention to these things, you can live well in these years. If you're living under the illusion that I'm always going to have as sharp of a mind as I have now, I'm always going to be able to pull all-nighters, I'm always going to be able to retain everything I study eight hours later when the test comes, I'm always going to have access to this many friends all the time, I'm always going to have a heart that remains interested in the Lord. If you're under that illusion, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to live your life well in these years. Very difficult to live well in these years. Conventional wisdom might say uh, right now um, for us, let loose, enjoy these best years of your life. You can get serious about God later if you want to, if anybody's still into him in 10 years from now. But true wisdom says odds are slim. Odds are slim that a person right now who's making decisions to disregard the Lord and the things of the Lord would have any interest in him a few years down the road. Odds are slim that that person is going to ever want to get serious about God when right now every decision is saying, I don't take you seriously. In other words, the you of later down the road is a different person than the you right now. And oftentimes when we think about the future, we think about 
this present version of Ben in that future scenario. Ben will be different in that future scenario. Ben will be further along in the trajectory that he's on right now, the Rankin-Wilburn Court. Your decisions right now are determining what kind of older person you're going to be. The teacher tells you the years are going to change you for better or for worse. So wise people have recognized that youth is in short supply. Now, you econ majors, you Terry majors, eat your heart out. You're going to get a couple of financial illustrations tonight, maybe for the first time ever. But when things are in short supply, when they're scarce, you've got to manage them wisely and budget it, right? If you don't have much time this semester, 18 hours, side job, involved in some club on campus, you are learning how to budget your time. You don't have much of it. Only the best stuff gets your time. Um, money, budgeting your money. Maybe you're budgeting relationships. You're like, I'm a senior. I've only got two months left here. I really want to spend some quality time with the people I'm already close with. You're having to budget even relationships because they're in scarce supply. And it's the same idea with youth. If youth is scarce, if it is fading, if it's moving, if you're one day closer to not being a young person, as the teacher calls you, what does it look like to budget it wisely? Think about this. I know this is weird. I'm not a Marvel guy or whatever, but think about like you got to UGA or you got to Athens, whenever, uh, whatever that was, and somebody came to you and they says, hey, I have a superpower that I'm giving you and it's going to last exactly 10 years to the day. Um, and I, the clock starts now. And you start hearing the tick, 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 and it starts ticking down. And at the end of 10 years, it's going to be completely gone. So the closer to the 10 years you get, the superpower begins to fade. But the superpower that I'm giving you is youth. It's vigor. It's sharpness. It's vitality. It's being kind of fully alive in every meaning of the word. If that happened to you, would it change how you lived? Maybe not immediately, because you'd be like, a dude just gave me a superpower. I got to figure out how to use this. But would you take some time to think like, okay, I only have this for 10 years. Maybe I should do some things now that I was going to punt till later in life. It would change everything if you knew that this precious thing that I have is going away and it's going to become something else. You try to figure out how to leverage it, how to squeeze every little bit out of that now before it's gone. Could you imagine yourself thinking this way about youth, about being young, that it's in a sense a superpower that has a time limit on it and is fading away? Would it change the kinds of things that you do in the next year or two or three or four years versus the kind of things you postpone and put off? What's the benefit of investing now, maybe budgeting um, your youth wisely now. Here's the Terry thing. Um, I, my dad was a banker, and so being, you know, when we were growing up, he would always tell me about the compounding value of money and interest. And he would say things like this. We would pull out his calculator. He'd be like, if you invest $10,000 the first year after you graduate college, you get your full-time job, you got your salary, and you put away about $800 a month just that first year. And you never put another penny in that investment fund, that mutual fund, getting average rate of return. You never put another penny in it 
but you put $800 a month into it your first year of employment. Do you know how much money you would have when you retire? You pull out his calculator and you show me, you're like, whoa! Uh, and it's $2.9 million. Versus, if you put that $10,000, the equivalent out of your mattress, when you retire, you'll have $10,000. And it'll be worth a lot less. What would it look like if youth has a compounding interest? If investing unique opportunities you have right now exponentially grow and compound on top of each other year after year? What would that look like? Or physics majors, uh, you got a rocket and you make a course correction very early on in the launch sequence. How big of a difference does a course correction, you know, in the first 10,000 feet makes a year from now, wherever that thing is, versus a year from now, a course correction then? Thousands and thousands of miles. What if youth can be wisely invested and what if its fruits grow with compound interest? What if little course corrections right now in your life add up to massive changes in what kind of person and Christian you are, what kind of heart you have, what strength of faith you have? Here's some examples. What's the compounded impact in your future of investing time to pick out one of those books or some other book that someone who you trust has recommended to you? And you read it now. You say, I'm not a reader. You say, well, who cares if you're not a reader? Become a reader. You're a reader. You're a college student. And you, and you say, I'm going to take whatever. I'm going to take an hour a week. I'm going to go downtown. I'm going to read this book. I'm going to read Gentle and Lowly Fine. I've heard everyone talking about it. What's the compounded effect if you read that book? And right now in your life, you were able to become more prone to believe Jesus is amazing and he's patient with sinners and he loves me. That compounds. Let's say you're 20 and you read the book now. You're a different 21-year-old. That might change what kind of husband or wife you're looking for. That might kind of change what job you take or why you take the job you take. That might change what kind of church that you plug into, which will massively form you as a human being and a Christian. Do you see what I mean by the compounding interest? Tiny little decisions you make now. Some of you went to winter retreat. You didn't know anyone. It was scary. You might not have had the fireworks experience, but you made a little course correction now that is going to lead to massive accumulated impacts two or three years or 10 years down the road. I'm married to Anna. Are you here, Anna? She here, she's right back there. We met on the winter retreat. My first few weeks of RUF when I showed up here. I don't know how, but I ended up in this room one night and heard the gospel preach and became a Christian. Get what I'm saying? Tiny little course corrections in these malleable, formable years early on makes thousands of miles of difference later on in your life. Joining a local church for the first time. You've never done it. You don't see the point. You're like, I, my parents are members back in Atlanta or whatever. But you plug in and put roots down in a church here, even if you're a senior, even if you only have a year left. What compounded impact will that have on next year, the year after, the year after, the year after? It could change other people's lives, your children's lives, your friends' lives, and on and on and on. The tiny decision to get out of an unhealthy relationship instead of limping on through it another three years and that foolishness compounding and affecting your life. The decision, the risk, the courage to share your last secret, the last thing nobody knows about you that's scary to put out there, but you need somebody to know. 
What difference does that make? Using your youth to its maximum potential has big impact. So here's where I want to end. In your last seven or eight minutes tonight as we wrap this up, what does it mean? Like how do you invest your youth? What does that phrase mean? I gave you some examples a minute ago just to kind of bring it down to earth. So hopefully we're already, your mind's turning with some practical ideas, but what does it mean to remember God, to, in, to invest your youth wisely. Well, I just gave it away accidentally, to remember the Lord in these years. This is another thing he repeats nine times in 10 sentences. Remember, remember him, remember him, remember him, remember him, remember him, remember him, remember him. Not remember it, remember Christianity. Remember these principles for living wisely. Remember you live in a hevel world and you need to enjoy the gifts. No, remember him. Your creator. Which already we've covered this, but it, it suggests to you you're not the creator. The pressure's off. God's not asking you or expecting you to be God. He's content so you can be content just being tiny little human being. Here one moment, gone the next called to be faithful to him, called to listen to him, walk with him, love him, and be loved by him. But you might think, okay, is this like deism that he's saying? Hey, remember that there is a God. No. He doesn't say, remember that there is a God. He says, remember your creator. Can I ask you a question? How do you get more personal than you and the one who made you. You'll be close to your husband or wife one day if you get married. You'll be close to your best friends. You'll be close to coworkers in the future. How do you get more close and connected to a being than the one whose hands formed you and the one who sustains you? We're not talking about some distant deity. Remember God. Be a deist in your young years. Remember your creator. Israel, the Jews who would have been reading Ecclesiastes, already would have been saturated with the Pentateuch, with Deuteronomy, with the prophets. Isaiah connects how they would have heard this word creator a lot better. He says, for your Isaiah 54.5, For your maker is your husband, Israel. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. And he's the God of all the earth. We're getting more intimate, more personal. Your maker is your spouse. That's the level of connection we're talking about. No generic deity, no remember God, but remember your redeemer. Where did I get that? Am I just trying to go gospel on you because it's the end of the message? Deuteronomy, bear with me. Deuteronomy 6, this is Moses teaching the Israelites how to teach their children to help them remember. He says, you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands, this vision of living with God that I'm giving you today in Deuteronomy 6. Repeat these things again and again to your children. Talk about them with your kids when you're at home, when you're on the road, when you're going to bed, when you're getting up. Tie them on your hands as reminders. Wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. 
In the future, he says in verse 20, your children are going to ask you, what's the meaning, mom and dad, of all this stuff that the Lord God has told us? Then you must tell them, verse 21, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand. The Lord did miraculous signs and wonders before our eyes. He dealt terrifying blows against Egypt and Pharaoh. We would add death and sin and slavery and stuckness and condemnation and shame. Back then against Pharaoh for us, Jesus on the cross delivering us. He brought us out of Egypt so that he could give us land, so that he could be with us. And the Lord God commanded us to love him and to love each other and to fear him. That's what the teacher is calling us to remember. And he said to your mom and dad, tell her. Every time you see her, remind her of the gospel. Remind her that this creator, that this God is a redeemer, a rescuer, a savior, a friend of sinners, a lifter of the burden of the weak. One who befriends the ungodly, the dead, the weak, the condemned. One who moves towards those who are paralyzed. Tell him the story every day, mom, dad, she's going to forget, he's going to forget. Remind her when you're going to work, when you're moving them into college, when you come up for a little meal, when they come over at Christmas time, remind them, remind them, remind them. Friends to each other in your community groups, in your drive home tonight, when you see your friend depressed, remind her, remind him. Remember, not there's a God, there's a deity, there's a redeemer, there's a savior. This is the secret to investing your youth in a way that compounds, not just in your life, but in the community's life. And the high tide rises every boat. It rises everybody in this room. Everybody on that campus becomes affected by these things. I just want to encourage you by this little practical um, reminder at the end. I was, uh, you know, I won't get into the details, but some of us were sitting at College Square yesterday. I loved those conversations. We were really talking about how often we forget what God is really like, right? Talking about how tormented you are and how afflicted you are in your head when you think he's a graceless deity again and he's waiting on you to become a better Christian. Or if you're not a Christian, he's waiting on you to figure out how to fix yourself enough to present yourself in his presence and plead your case of why he should save you. And how we just, we tank. We resent him. We're scared. And so we sat around there and y'all do it with each other. I see you. And I get to do it with you and you do it with me. And we sit there and we remind each other, oh, he's so patient. <laughs> Did you forget he's patient? Did you forget he's a father? He knows you're young. Did you forget he's a father? He knows how to teach you how to walk and then teach you how to run. He's a savior. He said he came for the sick. Did you forget? He came for the sick. You're sick. You've been telling me for 45 minutes how you're sick. Good news. He's a physician. You all down in the dumps about how weak you are, about the lack of progress you've made in 2021 or 2022. Awesome. He's here for the weak. You, finally realizing you're not a Christian, you don't know God, you don't enjoy him, and these things have been convicting you, and you're like, I'm not righteous, I'm not enough before God. And someone reminds you, or maybe something in here reminds you, and it's like, you're not enough. 
And God has freely offered you the one who is enough to make the one who is enough count for you who's not enough. Freely, by grace, by mercy. Remembering is hard work. Don't you ever forget it. It takes a ton of elbow grease to remember. What is your plan? What is your strategy starting tonight? To remember your Redeemer in the days of your youth. Let's pray. Jesus, our strategies and our plans only work because we have your Holy Spirit empowering them. They're weak little things. It's like a sail on a sailboat. No power of its own. Just a piece of cloth. But when you blow in that thing, we move. So I pray for imagination. I pray for creativity. I pray for just our minds to get out of their ruts, to think through, how am I going to remember that Jesus is good, that he's for me, that my Father sees me, he's paying attention. Um, Spirit, blow. Jesus, open eyes and soften hearts, we pray in your name.